In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. I'm your host, Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're going to, once again, give you an update on the coronavirus. After that, we're going to talk about, is a quarantine coming for Floridians who decide to come to New Jersey? Uh, we'll talk about that. I'll give an update on the uh, Jim Saga Part 3. Then we'll talk about Patterson Police Department, some of the things that they're doing there. We'll have a discussion on the West Orange Township removing Columbus statues. And then I'll talk about anti-Chinese racism in New Jersey. After the headlines, I'll talk about, go over the history of Bridgegate and... I'm going to bring our listeners the history of the diner, since we are right. the, the diner capital of the world. Starting off with the coronavirus numbers, it looks like as of June 18th, the numbers are continuing to still decline. We're down, down to under 500 uh, a day for the past about a week. The total amount of coronavirus deaths in New Jersey is 12,857 with 169,000 confirmed cases and 29,000 people recovered from it. I think what we're starting to see now is not that New Jersey is completely safe, which is why we still need to be wearing masks and stuff, but we're definitely down from that peak of like 3,000, 4,000 cases a day we were getting in late March uh, and then throughout April. It looks like the infection is the uh, the pandemic, rather, is spreading to mainly the south and west of the United States, which does lead, like, as we were saying, questions about whether or not that will then come back to our area as people try to escape those areas. Because we don't have hard borders in the United States. Yeah, usually a good thing. It can also <laughs> be troubling. So on that topic, I'd just like to bring up, there was a floridapolitics.com article titled, New York is Seriously Considering Florida COVID-19 Quarantine by A.G. Gankarski. The author writes, COVID-19 fears may block Floridians from traveling to the New York City area, Governor Andrew Cuomo warned Monday, suggesting the tri-state area could block Sunshine State visitors from the recent corona surge. Quote, now our fear in New York is those people are going to travel to New York and bring the virus with them, the governor said on MSNBC Monday morning. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut could, in regional collaboration, impose a two-week quarantine on Florida tra travelers until the state finally quells the recent upticks in infections. I get phone calls from people in Florida, uh, Cuomo continues, who say, we want to come to New York because we're afraid of the virus. So I actually think this is a good idea. This is something that you see in other countries. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is China imposes this kind of mandatory quarantine when you go from areas in China that have the coronavirus to areas that don't. One of the things they should do is test people that come from Florida, things like that, just to maybe test them, quarantine them, test them again, things like yeah. that, just to be sure. But it, it's funny that they're coming from Florida, wanting to come to New York, which was like the epicenter of the virus. And I, I wonder, because airlines already have not been cooperating with social distancing guidelines. And yeah. if anyone's been on a plane, you know how sanitary those are in general. So I don't... Did you see the it, one happy plane story? No. Where, they, where the <laughs> guy got kicked off the plane? Well, no. they, he refused to wear a mask when they were in the air. And then when they landed, they like kicked him off and banned him from the airline. And then he got banned from basically like every airline. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. He, he apparently ended up being some, not like just like a Trump supporter, obviously, <laughs> but he was like a, a pretty well known one. I don't know, like the 
I don't know the mid-ranked like tier <laughs> of conservative journalists and like Twitter influencers. Like that's not like my area of expertise, but that's apparently yeah. somewhere where he works. <laughs> oh boy. Well, yeah. that's good though. That's I think it's off. I think it's interesting that we were kind of saying this stuff, and some people that I've been talking to were like, like, oh, what, what's the real like? Do you realistically think that people from like Florida and other areas are going to come to New Jersey? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> why, why not? And it's just interesting to me that apparently we're not the only ones thinking this. Like, it's not just random people. It's it's going up to Governor Cuomo, and I'm sure it's coming into the minds of uh, our Governor Murphy. Yeah, well, if you're a New Jersey resident, you know a handful of people who either retire to Florida from New York, New Jersey, the tri-state area, or who fre- frequently fly to Florida for vacation, a.k.a. Disney, or people who just like to go to Florida in general, because it's the, the climate of Florida. It, I mean, it's a vacation spot, but it's similar to the Jersey Shore in the summer. So people might come to the Jersey Shore in the summer and then go back to Florida and vice versa. You know what I mean? People from New Jersey going to Florida during the winter months uh, because they don't want to deal with the, the cold. Or family, so, too. A lot of northerners go and... Uh basically pseudo-colonize uh, Florida, <laughs> right? So they have yeah. like, homes there. They might, uh, maybe they sell their home in New Jersey and stuff to move to Florida, but they'll still have family and connections that they'll try to stay with here. So yeah, I think it's worth so I think um, it's, at least seriously considering that maybe yeah. not a 14-day quarantine, uh, but something. Yeah, but I just want to say that in case we have any non-New Jersey listeners <laughs> that yeah. are wondering why why is Florida such a big deal to New Jersey? And why, why do we hate Florida so much? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so moving on, I wanted to bring up. Oh wait, we, on, oh, we should yeah, go. Something. We should go to Murphy's Corner. You completely. <laughs> oh, you're right. Well, let's talk about let's talk Murphy's Corner. You're right. Murphy's Corner, really quick. <laughs> this is a really organized week. Yeah, it's just chaos right now on the on the pod. So there's only one executive order, so I'm just gonna skate by it really quickly because it's kind of a strange one. So executive order 155 signed on the 18th of this month. So Governor Murphy signs executive order allowing for limited in-person instruction at institutions of higher education and trade and training schools beginning on July 1st. So on an article in an article on Insider New Jersey. They go into a little bit more detail. I was trying to find his press release, but I couldn't for this executive order. So the executive order will allow in-person clinical lab and hands-on programming at institutions of higher education to resume on July 1st, like I just said, with enhanced safety and health protocols. They will allow the schools to reopen on July 1st, provided specific health and this article just keeps repeating that. <laughs> and as a part of the process, the Office of Secretary of Higher Education New Jersey has issued restart standards for all New Jersey institutions of higher education that can guide the reopening and assist institutions as they prepare for next steps. Governor Murphy says, quote, as we move forward in our restart and recovery, these institutions will play a huge role. They are where our future workforce is being created While New Jersey continues to face the impacts of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, I am pleased that we will be able to take this step forward for our students and educators. I mean, as with everything with reopening, as long as there's protocols in place, you know, it's fine. But again, I'm always going to be cautiously on the fence about reopening because you need to supply these places with sanitization products and 
have people be tested for their temperatures because like we've seen before with the reopening, there's sometimes a, a slight spike. And if we can't get testing to the people that need to get tested, then we'll never really have an accurate count of the COVID spread. But it is what it is. We're reopening, even though there's still a global pandemic happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we don't have as rigorous of a like testing contact tracing regime yep. that other places have. And I, I, I know from other people telling me that basically as soon as the governor announced reopened, um, a lot of business owners took that as, okay, everyone, uh, you were working from home. Now you have to come in when the order was more or less, you know, continue working from home if you're able to. And uh, I know some people who at their offices, like a lot of people don't bother wearing masks. They just kind of ignore it. It's all over. So it's, yeah. yeah. Like we said, it's going to be interesting. I think we talked about last week how some employers were trying to make it so that you can't sue them if you were to get COVID in the workplace. So be aware about how your employers are treating you (laughs) during a once in a century global pandemic. Oh, boy. But moving on. You had a story about yes, the, the gym saga. So <laughs> so I'm going to continue the, the gym saga. So before I talked about how there was a gym in Belmar where they denied Murphy's orders, reopened, the police refused to shut it down for like a day or two, then they shut it down, then the owner didn't understand what a notice of embargo was because he couldn't read, then basically he sued the governor. And this is the update on that. So I'm reading from 6ABC News. They report a federal judge has declined to allow a Southern New Jersey gym to reopen as it continues a constitutional challenge to the state order that shut down businesses deemed non-essential in order to help stem the spread of coronavirus. U.S. District Judge Robert Kugler on Friday denied a temporary restraining order sought by the owners of the gym. The, the suit accused Governor Phil Murphy of having arbitrarily deemed some businesses essential while declaring others such as gyms not essential. The suit (laughs) argues that Murphy and other officials violated the constitutional rights of the owners by forcing them out of business indefinitely with no timeline for when they could reopen. And that's that's pretty much it. So they kind of lost that. They said they're going to appeal, but they'll probably lose that too because generally in in times of emergency, the executives like the governor, the president have uh, a lot of leeway and the courts usually let them do not anything they want, but a lot more than they could. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that it's kind of a, I'm not a lawyer, but but it's kind of a losing point to state that in their suit that that, that Murphy uh, said it was like arbitrary, like they, like he arbitrarily decided that, that some businesses are essential and others like gyms are non-essential because they basically, they only have to s- explain why the decision-making wasn't arbitrary. Yeah. And they have Which a is... lot of evidence on their side showing that gyms from other places <laughs> in the world uh, help spread it. And it might be that the information is is wrong or uh, incomplete or we still need more data to show how much, if at all, gyms spread this stuff. But Really, he's really going to only have to show that they had a, a reasonable based a suspicion based off of the other countries and states and things shutting d- gyms down that it's not it wasn't an arbitrary it's like he didn't just do it because he wanted to have fun shutting gyms down so this one guy gets mad and loses yeah. some gains over the past few months like that's not <laughs> that's not just what Murphy was doing. Up. Yeah, yeah. So. It's interesting. I, th- I think this suit is a, is a, it's just a disaster, and it's kind of shameful because it's just I don't I don't yeah. think the owner is that bright to be honest. 
I think he's just doing it as like a publicity stunt. Yeah, he's gonna go down in the history for the man who fought for gains in New Jersey. Fought for gains, yeah. <laughs> fought for gains for everybody. Our constitutional right for gains. Yeah. All right. Moving on, do you want to talk about the Patterson Police Department? Yes. So this is an article from tapinto.net by the Patterson staff. I <laughs> I don't like when, I mean, I guess because more than one person probably contributed to the article. But, you know, when it's, you know, an article from the editorial board or from the staff, you know, it, I want to credit where the credit is due, but there's no one to really credit besides this bureau. So the headline is Patterson will be the first city in the state to release 20 years of police misconduct information. So this is a new directive requiring hundreds of law enforcement agencies across the state to reveal the names of cops who have been reprimanded fired by the New Jersey Attorney General. And the mayor of Patterson announced that the police department will publish a list of all current or former police officers who have been fired, demoted, or suspended for more than five days due to a disciplinary violation in the past 20 years. So there will be a full list of names along with a summary of the violations, and it will be published no later than July 15, 2020. Do you, do you know if it's going to be online? Like, is it, uh, or is it like one of those, uh, it's published, but you have to like request the documents? Yeah, the article is not saying I imagine where it's, it's going to be, be. I would hope so. And I ho would hope that it is like a searchable database. You know what I mean? With like a, a filtering function. Yeah. Because as we've talked about before, if you commit, not necessarily a crime, but like a violation, if you get disciplined, you can, or fired you can technically still be a cop in another town or another state. So if it's not searchable and easily access that information, then it's going to be kind of falling on deaf ears if you're not able to really put that information to work and really analyze that data. So this is good news. And New Jersey, you know, doing something good <laughs> with everything that's going on in the news about police violence and police reform and defunding the police. This is a, a technique that you'll be able to comb through this information and really put it to work if it's accessible. And this is going to be the first, and it's, I hope it's not going to be the last, because this is this is a good move for I, I agree. New Jersey. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the West no, Orange yeah. as well? <laughs> <laughs> Following the trend in national news, New Jersey is not um, going to be untouched with the, the revolutionary moment that we're all experiencing. And this is an article from NewJersey.com from Amy for parents keep that's as good as it's gonna get amy i'm sorry but the the title of this article is west orange will remove christopher columbus monument a quote symbol of hate and oppression so as everyone knows there's been a, a rise of statues being toppled across the country and new jersey is going to be i think there's been a few monuments that have been taken down already um by protesters so this is basically an olive branch from the local government to the protesters recognizing that the residents want the statue taken down. And uh, the mayor of West Orange said, quote, the legend of Christopher Columbus does not match the true history. And today, the man, the statues, the monuments celebrating his life are 
a divisive and symbol of hate and oppression and cannot remain as a part of our community. So there was the widespread call to remove statues and monuments. And this has come with the the rise of the protests across the country and in New Jersey in particular, following the killing of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. And people are taking this moment to right the wrongs of not just the history, but the the putting on a pedestal of these conflicting historical figures. And I I want to acknowledge that just taking down the statues is not going to right the wrongs of history. And there are some statues that I don't, I wouldn't necessarily agree with personally being taken down, but if enough people want it down, who am I to stand in their way? And I think a lot of people are looking at these protesters as, you know, I don't defacing public property, but it's, if anyone has tried to do anything the right way of, you know, putting, taking down a statue or erecting a new statue, there's a lot of red tape that you need to go through. And even if you get the petition signatures, if your local government poo-poos the idea, it's not going to happen. And it's only when this flood of change and this revolutionary momentum comes that you can actually physically take down the statue and no one's going to re-erect that statue. So Yeah, so I have like a similar view. I'm not opposed to the statues coming down like I think Christopher Columbus was a pretty reprehensible person and it's deeply offensive how how we teach about Columbus in, in school like pretty yeah, much Yeah, he's really he's really glorified. Everything. Yeah, <laughs> is he glorified? He's like kind of like a proto American founding father who also was like scientific and that he proved the world was not flat, even though no one believed that at the time. So it's like, it's really strange uh, how we teach him. And so like, I'm, I'm not, I don't regret these statues uh, coming down. The thing that I'm worried about is that these protests began with the target of police brutality and it's not bad for them to expand to the whole uh, of attacking like all of racism right but i'm i'm worried that people are going to get too focused on taking down symbols as opposed of power as opposed to the actual like places that have power and systems that have power so like things started to actually get done not just in minneapolis but throughout the entire country on the issue of police brutality when the police station was burned down and these things turned into riots and the entire country was ignited and angry over the death of George Floyd and the terrible uh, police brutality reactions to these protests and getting stuck focusing on these symbols that don't really change or mean much. Like I I don't lament the the statues being gone. I'm afraid if, if all we do is make the movement about statues, that's a reversion to where we were like five years ago. Yeah. But the good thing is it doesn't seem like that's the case in most areas. It seems kind of like people are focusing on the police brutality and then like a statue's there and they're like, let's take the statue down. So like, it's like, that's good. If, if most of it is, is like that, but again, I'm always like just worried that uh, we're going to get sidetracked and get easily co-opted into a kind of like, you know, complacent attack the symbols, be happy that, uh, JP Morgan hires like three new people of color or something like that. And then we say we won against racism again. And yeah, 
It's like, but I think a lot of people have that fear too. So I think a lot of people in the movement too have that fear, which is good. That means we're like learning lessons from from the struggles in the past. Yeah, and I think it's a message we try to hit home every episode when we review or cover any kind of any kind of update in the protest movement that's happening right now, how it affects New Jersey. And it seems like culturally, New Jersey for the most part is very diverse and. Don't want to say liberal. I want to say open-minded to the idea that the things that we, not that we worship statues, but the things that we have erected represents our culture and our history in a positive light. So I think in the future, these statue placements will be replaced with a more adequate representation of our history. But like you just said, to make it just stop at statues and the replacements of those statues, it's going to, you know, not necessarily dismantle the systemic racism in yeah, if everyday have, institutions if like have, the banks and the police. And if we have the, like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King statues everywhere, but the police are still racist and beating the shit out of black people all the time that's like how yeah. how do we measure that progress but again it's not like people aren't concerned about these things i'm just i'm raising concerns that people already are concerned about so it's, it's not i'm not like trying to say so anyone's say i'm not concerned trolling about the statues I, I really don't care if we take down <laughs> a curtain yeah. of a statue i just don't i just don't want us to get caught up in making this the goal everywhere and that's it yeah the like, symbol of the movement. Yeah. yeah yeah taking down symbols are important but only taking down symbols aren't important to hit it home just a little bit more, Barack Obama was the first black president of the United States. And then who was elected right after him? Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. The symbol was a momentous, monumental thing. And, and yet black lives matter started up... <laughs> Barack Obama yes. because the treatment of black people under police did not improve. Yeah. So the symbolic mm -hmm. moment is great. Take it down. But remember that racism is not going to be changed simply by a statue. You might feel more comfortable not seeing that statue anymore. However, make sure you're working every day to end it. You know what I mean? Actually put I will things say, into place. I will just add that I think a good symbol to have is we probably should get rid of Christopher Columbus Day. It's kind of like weird anyway. No, it's not really celebrated. It's just kind of like this strange thing that I'm not sure why we even have. And instead, one that we should actually have is we should actually celebrate Juneteenth, like the free yes. slaves. It's Some... absolutely insane that we do not celebrate one of the one of the most important moments in our country's history. The freeing yeah. of slaves. We and should celebrate that. Some one employer I know in particular, my friend works for, uh, they got the day off. Good, good. And it it was you know, and some people just took their vacation leave off um, that I know of so that they could you know educate themselves on the holiday and the the movement that's happening right now. So you know, things can things can change. Like that would be a great. Yeah symbolic change for our government to recognize this holiday and make it on par with Christopher Columbus Day. If you know, yeah. take it switch away. That one, switch that one to Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. We talk about different indigenous peoples or about their culture and things like that. And exactly. uh, the atrocity that happened to them. And then add Juneteenth as a uh, federal holiday that we all have off for there you go. I think that's a good and then that, that those would be good symbols. <laughs> like 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 because because those symbols yeah. both have days dedicated to like memorize like not memorizing up uh, sorry learning and understanding these things. What also the uh, the day off which gives 
more time back to working class people to just do the things they want to do yeah. instead of you know working all the time. On the topic of racism, I had a headline that was kind of kind of infuriating. So uh, this is reported by ABC Seven. Uh, New York News. A New Jersey Chinese restaurant was vandalized with racist COVID-19 graffiti. A Chinese restaurant in New Jersey was vandalized with hateful messages regarding the coronavirus overnight on Wednesday. Cleaning crews spent the morning power washing and repainting the new gourmet garden, a family restaurant in Wyckoff that has been open for takeout and delivery during the pandemic. The owner said that they arrived at the restaurant around 8 a.m. and the police were already there, so it appears someone had seen this graffiti and called 911. The police are investigating the incident as a hate crime because of the messages that were spray painted on the building, which included coronavirus and COVID-19, with an arrow pointing at the front door and it said, go home to China. Customers said they were shocked and appalled and that Wyckoff is a welcoming place for all colors and cultures. This sickens me, Trisha Grover said. I feel like this is the political climate of today and it makes me very sad. I think they have hate in their heart and it is a horrible thing to have hate in your heart for someone you don't even know. Authorities say this is the second time business has been vandalized during the pandemic and the area residents are hoping the police can track down the culprit. Uh, Murphy commented on it, tweeted, I'm appalled by the hateful and racist graffiti left on a Chinese restaurant in Wyckoff. Coronavirus is not an excuse for racism. We stand in full solidarity with our Chinese American community. Yeah, I think I did a whole episode on, or a segment, I mean, on this, like many episodes ago about Chinese immigration to into New Jersey and, yeah. and, and like kind of growing xenophobia and stuff like that. And uh, I am worried about this. I'm seeing a uptick online of just like anti-Chinese uh, propaganda. Some of it's fueled by, of course, uh, Trump. Trump's basically making his entire campaign on uh, China. But I'm also seeing it coming from well-intentioned liberals, too, kind of spreading anti-Chinese misinformation and propaganda, which all builds a climate that affects people to do racist things like this. So don't spread anti-Chinese propaganda. Don't say, spread racist things about Chinese people or really anybody. We don't need that here in New Jersey yeah. or anywhere. That is not New Jersey. Yeah, I agree. And what what is the restaurant again? It was I think we could, we could New state Gourmet it. Garden in Wyckoff. Yeah, so if there's yeah. any listeners in that area, you know, shop there for your for your dinner tonight. You know yeah, what I mean? Or lunch. <laughs> Definitely. Support I don't know about breakfast. Restaurants. <laughs> so yeah, that's it for the, uh, this week's headlines. Okay, so I wanted to talk about Bridgegate. I've been wanting to do this one for a while because it's just kind of like a crazy scandal. And everyone I has. Have- yeah. has the moment of like, where were you when Bridgegate Yeah, <laughs> and, and the thing is, uh, I haven't actually read about Bridgegate in a while because uh, outside of just every now and then uh, updating on random Bridgegate stuff that's like finally coming to an end uh, years later, I, I just like, I like lived through it. So I never like, I haven't gone back and read about like what happened. I just remember before this, I just remembered like kind of what happened. So it was actually kind of eye-opening seeing just how uh, crazy it was. So Bridgegate is the name for what, what was the Fort Lee Lane Closure Scandal or also called the George Washington Bridge Lane Closure Scandal. And this was a pretty major political scandal in New Jersey during Chris Christie's second term. Actually, technically it was right before Chris Christie's second term and while he was running for a re-election, but it carried through his entire second term. So just some quick background. 2013 was an election year for Chris Christie. His popularity had increased due to his handling of the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, and many local politicians endorsed Christie's campaign, including uh, Democratic mayors and, and other politicians. And do you think the, it had anything to do with him hugging Obama? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually do think him hugging Obama increased his uh, Democrats' opinions of him. <laughs> like, I, I actually do. So he, he made bipartisanship a key part of his campaign in 2013 because Christie, uh, as we can now retractively look, Christie was looking to run for president uh, even at this time. <laughs> you can just tell. That's, this is what he was building up to. He was always to. itching. You don't you don't start stressing a bipartisan background unless you're running for president in a state that's like all democratic controlled anyway. So so you get all these local politicians endorsing Christie's campaign, but Fort Lee's Democratic mayor Mark uh, Sokolich did not endorse Christie, and it's widely understood that the the George Washington Bridge Lane closures occurred as an act of political revenge for Mark uh, Sokolich's failure to endorse Chris Christie's reelection campaign. But there are some questions as to how involved Chris Christie was. I'll get into those questions later, but for now, let's go into the scandal. So on August 13th, 2013, Bridget Ann Kelly, Deputy Chief of Staff in Chris Christie's administration, sent an email to David Wildstein, who was the Christie appointee who will later uh, order the lane closure. This email said, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. Wildstein responded to Kelly's email. Got it. About <laughs> um, about a month later, on September 6, Wildstein instructed George Washington Bridge. Is there like a winky face in that? Right. Right. There actually is one more thing about this. Keep this in mind because I, I forgot to write this down. A little before that August 13th meeting, Christie met with a couple people, and there's speculation that it was talk. They were talking about basically blatant closures, but no one really knows what was said during that meeting. But it's kind of important later. So about a month after this email, September 6, Wildstein instructed George Washington Bridge Manager Robert Durando not to tell anyone in Fort Lee about the upcoming closure, not even the police. When Durando questioned the order, Wildstein responded, "Quote: It would impact the study." end quote, if people knew. And Wildstein, quote, wanted to see what would naturally happen. Uh, this is the cover that the main criminals, Bridget Ann Kelly and David Wildstein, would use for the lane closures. They, they basically were telling people that it's uh, some study that they were doing. On Monday, September 9th, 2013, right before the morning rush hour, two of the toll lanes on the Fort Lee side of the George Washington Bridge were closed. David Wildstein ordered these closures without notifying either the Fort Lee government or the police. The resulting traffic jams caused much delays. The traffic jams delayed paramedic response times, which included an emergency call for a 91-year-old woman, Florence Genova, who died of cardiac arrest. Her daughter was asked about this, and she said that she doesn't want to attribute the death to for like any political cause because her mother was 91 years old. But uh, you really can't say how it would have what would have happened if their ambulance was able to get there in time and all that kind of stuff. So it's worth thinking about. And plus, this will this will play into a lot of things later. So a Huffington Post article described the traffic jam. Quote: New emails released by the New Jersey State Assembly give more details of residents panicking beginning the morning of September 9th and lasting until the lanes were reopened on September 13th. No one in Fort Lee was given any warning of the lane closures, meaning they were completely unprepared for the chaos. People were late to work. The police department was forced to direct traffic instead of responding to emergencies. There was an accident involving a school bus, and one exasperated resident threatened to take his complaint all the way to the White House. Those involved were hardly upset at the trouble they were causing. One text message to David Wildstein, Chris, Christie's Port Authority official who carried out the closures, read, quote, is it wrong that I'm smiling? The sender is unknown because the message was redacted. It took one man at least one hour and 45 minutes to go from his home to work, which was a only a distance of six miles. After, that's crazy, after a few lane closures, 
Port Authority officials were being told that delaying closures threatened public safety. Per the New York Daily News, quote, a September 9th email to Port Authority executives Bill Baroni and David Wildstein laid out the life-threatening situation created by the punitive morning rush hour lane closures at the world's busiest bridge. I'm quoting from it. Wanted you both to have a heads up. Peggy Thomas, borough administrator, called me regarding the increased volume and congestion, wrote Port Authority employee Tina Lado. She mentioned that there were two incidents that the Fort Lee Police Department and EMS had difficulty responding to. A missing child, later found, and a cardiac arrest. If there's anything you need me to do, let me know. The Wikipedia article details the extent to which planners at the George Washington Bridge closing had gone to ensure that the lanes remained closed. So they wanted to make sure that, you know, after they forced the lanes to be closed, that they weren't just opened up the next day. So at the federal trial of Baroni and Kelly, Fort Lee Police Chief Keith Bendel testified that he had reached Durando on that Monday, who asked for a meeting not at the Port Authority office, but in a nearby municipal parking lot. Quote, I thought it was cloak and dagger. Durando spoke of the traffic study and Bendel demanded its ending, citing the various safety problems. Quote, I told Durando bluntly that if anybody dies, I'm going to tell those people to sue him and everybody at Port Authority. A nervous Durando told Bendel that Sokolich should contact Baroni and added that, quote, if anybody asked if this meeting occurred, Durando would deny it. <laughs> Dep- they met in a parking lot to discuss this, which is crazy. Deputy Chief of Staff Bridget Kelly emailed Wildstein and asked about his response, if any, to the Fort Lee Mayor Mark Sokolich. Wildstein responded, radio silence. His name comes right after Mayor Fulop of Jersey City, who was also complaining about what was going on. Port Authority PD Lieutenant Thomas Chip Michaels, a Christie childhood friend, ordered his subordinates not to touch the cones and chauffeured Wildstein around the Fort Lee area on an observation tour and updated Wildstein on traffic conditions throughout the week via text messages. They actually went out to observe the chaos. That's how like sick these people were. On Tuesday, September 10th, Sokolich texted Veroni, quote, presently we have four very busy, tra- busy traffic lanes merged into, into only one toll booth. Bigger problems is getting kids to school. Help, please. It's maddening. Kelly's text message exchange with Wildstein referred to the mayor's message. Kelly asked, this is where that came in. No, I'm sorry. Is it wrong that I'm smiling? Wildstein replied, no. Kelly then wrote, <laughs> I feel badly about the kids, I guess. Wildstein responded, they're the children of Buono, Buono voters, referring to Barbara Buono, Christie's Democratic opponent in the <laughs> November election. Yeah, so 12-year veteran PA, PAPD officer Steve Pisciota was stationed near the affected entrance and reported over his radio about the hazardous conditions created by the severe traffic. The Port Authority uh, PD de- Deputy Inspector Darcy uh, Licorice radioed back, shut up, and that there should be no over-the-air discussion of the closures. Lieutenant Michaels and PAPD Sergeant Nadine Rem later visited Pisciota in person, warning that his communication was inappropriate. On Wednesday, September 11th, Robert Durando said in a Port Authority email that if the automated toll lanes were closed permanently in favor of one-man lane for local traffic, it would be very expensive since annual toll cost, collector costs would increase approximately $600,000. This would have covered overtime as well as stationing reserve employees when a scheduled toll collector was not able to work. He said there would be additional but still-to-be-determined costs for PA police due to the coverage of traffic for a greatly extended rush hour. On February, September 13th, Patrick Foy, executive director of the Port Authority and appointed by Andrew Cuomo, ordered the lanes to be reopened. So he sent an email. He sent it to 
uh, Cedric Fulton, Robert Durando, Bill Baroni, and a couple other people that were all involved in the Fort Lee closures. He said, reports are that Fort Lee has experienced severe traffic delays engulfing the entire Fort Lee area since Monday. I am appalled by the lack of process, failure to inform our customers and Fort Lee, and most of all, by the dangers created to public interest. So I'm reversing this decision now, effective as soon as the authorities, tunnels, bridges, and terminals division and the Port Authority police tell me it is safe to do so. I am making this decision for the following reasons. One, this hasty and ill-advised decision has resulted in delays to emergency vehicles. I pray that no life has been lost or or trip of, of a hospital or a hospice-bound patient delayed. Two, this hasty and ill-advised decision has undoubtedly had an adverse effect on economic activity in both states. This is contrary to the directive we have from our governors to do everything possible to create jobs in both states. And he actually continues to go on over and over again to continue, re, continually refer to it as a, a hasty and ill-advised decision. So you think it would just end there, right? But it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> so basically, per the New York Post, uh, Governor Christie's top Port Authority appointee, Bill Baroni, then tried to cover up the crippling retaliatory lane closures at the uh, George Washington Bridge by demanding the agency hide the truth from the public, as uh, damning emails revealed. Quote, I'm on my way to, uh, to the office to discuss. There could be no public discourse, Bill Baroni uh, wrote to the agency uh, head Patrick Foy on September 13th, following a week of traffic chaos in Fort Lee. In a September 16th email to Scott Reckler, Vice Chairman of the Port Authority Board of Commissioners, Samson flat out accused Foy of, of leaking an internal memo on the matter to a Wall Street Journal reporter. I am told the executive director Foy leaked to the Wall Street Journal his story about Fort Lee issues. Very unfortunate for New York-New Jersey relations, Samson wrote to Reckler, complaining that the agency Hancha was playing in traffic, made a big mistake. A month later, on October 9th, a top advisor to Samson wrote to Wildstein, Quote, has any thought been given to writing an op-ed or providing a statement about the George Washington Bridge study? Or is this plan just to hunker down and grit our way through it? Uh, Wildstein answered yes and yes. Baroni's no public discourse email was copied to Lisa Max Baden, PA's Cuomo appointed public relations head, who quietly departed from the agency without explanation on January 2nd. So <laughs> sketchy. Everything's sketchy. So Foy would later testify that Baroni met with him two times on that Friday, pressing for reinstatement of the closure, saying it was, quote, important to Tretton or else Tretton would call, which Foy understood to mean Christie's office. I said they should call, Foy testified. I opened the lanes. I was not closing them. However, Foy did approve a press release that he knew falsely cited a traffic study. On October 2nd, 2013, Democratic Assemblyman John Wisniewski announced sounds, that he sounds correct. Sounds good, right? Announced that he would launch an investigation into lane closing to see if they were politically motivated. So I'm not gonna go into the entire investigation because that was filled with like people lying, a bunch of other stuff. Sorry, kind of long. Basically, people wanted to know what what happened, right? Because because there was no study. Uh, that was complete fabrication. The lanes were closed for no reason, and yeah. it caused a bunch of problems. So, and also, if you were going to do a lane study, it probably wouldn't be best to do it on Monday before rush hour. Because exactly. like, it would make more sense to do it a Friday or a Thursday where maybe people are taking vacation or, you know what I mean? Like things that you would impact it would study make, only enough that you just have to multiply it. It would make no sense numbers. not to notify the government and the uh, yeah. police either who could assist with the study. Unless, well, you're testing the police's reaction, which was going to be, hey, why are these closed? Like everyone could tell you that. <laughs> so basically, Wildstein, Baroni, and Kelly, they all get indicted. And these May 2015 indictments contend that the lane closures were political retribution against Fort Lee Mayor Mark Sokolich, 
who didn't support, as I said, Christie in his 2013 New Jersey governor election. Sokolich initially claimed that he was asked for an endorsement once in the spring of 2013, mere months before August, time for, uh, and mere, uh, mere months before that, that email reference where they said time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. <laughs> the May 2015 indictment, citing text messages between Wildstein, Baroni, and Kelly, contended that the lane closures were designed to have maximum impact upon motorists in the city of Fort Lee. The other thing to remember, I think, which is kind of lost, I might not have mentioned it, was that it, uh, this mayor was up for re-election in November at the same time that Christie was. So this was meant to hurt that mayor's chances of re getting re-elected. The closures targeted the first day of school and deliberately steered cars to the cash lane so as to maximize traffic disruption in the surrounding areas. The New York Times reported that, quote, the three plotting like petulant and juvenile pranksters using government resources, time, and personnel to punish a public official whose sole offense was failing to endorse their political patron. The three were in constant contact, brazenly using government emails, their tone sometimes almost giddy. They even gave the increasingly desperate mayor of Fort Lee their own version of the silent treatment, end quote. So on March 19, 2017, Baroni was sentenced to 24 months in prison and Kelly was sentenced to 18 months. On June 12, 2017, Wildstein was sentenced to three years probation and 500 hours of community service. Kelly's lawyers filed a petition in the Supreme Court of the United States asking the court to hear their appeal. The court agreed to take up the case in 2019. The oral argument was held on January 14, 2020. Observers to the court stated that they felt the justices were sympathetic to Baroni and Kelly's side, questioning the broadness of the fraud charges the two were convicted on. On May 7, 2020, the court ruled unanimously to overturn the conviction. The Supreme Court held that Baroni and Kelly, for no reason other than political payback, reshuffled the lanes on the George Washington Bridge. Justice Elena Kagan wrote that the move jeopardized the residents of Fort Lee, but concluded that, quote, not every corrupt act by state or local officials is a federal crime. And then there's one more thing to add, because might, you might have noticed I didn't mention Chris Christie's involvement at all in this whole thing, because there's like kind of a little debate as to how much he was involved. So a major part of this is it's called the Gibson Dunn Report, which is on January 16, 2014, Chris Christie's office hired the law firm Gibson Dunn and Crutcher to assist with an internal review and cooperate with the U.S. attorney's investigation into these lane closures. So basically, you could probably see where this is going. The report basically found that Christie had no prior knowledge of the George Washington Bridge closures and did not know why it occurred. It basically just blamed Bridget Kelly and David Wildstein for the Fort Lee lane closures. Yeah, so Christie hired a law firm, which then came up with the conclusion that the person that they that uh, hired them did nothing wrong. Sketchy, <laughs> right? Well, I'm not yeah. the only one that thinks so, and you're not the only one that thinks so. A Quinnipiac University poll found uh, that was done at the time that 56% of New Jerseyans believe that the report was a whitewash, with only like 30% basically finding that they believing the report, and the rest were kind of like, I don't know, like sounds sketchy. So the political yeah. aftermath of this was basically Christie's reputation was tarnished, and this happened like Bridgegate was a big thing that happened all throughout his second term. It also hurt his chances at becoming president because it was brought up during um, debates. And people forget this, but Christie was kind of seen as sort of like a rising star in the Republican Party because he was right wing. He was a he. The establishment kind of liked him because he was the head of a, uh, the governor of a Democratic state. So he has that kind of like bipartisan credentials image. that they like yeah. image. But this in combination with the fact that he uh, shook hands with Obama and wasn't as right wing as uh, Donald Trump 
is part of the reason why he Christie did not end up becoming the nominee of well uh, the Republican Party. So I, I thought Bridgegate's wild. I mean, there's so much more I could have went into, but it's already pretty long. The the investigation was filled with stuff where it kind of like really yes. didn't get into <laughs> what Christie did. There was a lot of Democratic party members who were furious that Christie wasn't taken down with this either because it's clear that he was involved. And it all comes back to that, like I said, that what was discussed during that day that he met with the people who would later on to go do Bridgegate before that first email was sent out. The idea that Christie didn't know this was happening, I think, is ludicrous when it, it literally targeted somebody who was what what benefit would his underlings have yeah. in doing this? It like, could be just like they wanted to have the pat on the back. Because if anyone's had a terrible manager, you know that your manager's manager knows your manager's terrible. Right. So all the terrible things your manager does is going to be not a reflection on the manager's manager, but it's going to be a reflection on the manager or just on you because you're the employee and don't really have a say in anything. So... I don't want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I want to say that maybe he is such a terrible person that his people thought it was okay to to, to do something like this and believe that they wouldn't get any kind of reprimand for doing so. Because if it went well, then they would get the pat on the back. If it went bad, they'd fall on the sword. You know what I mean? So, yep. oh, oh, Bridgegate. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, I'm going to tell you, if you're done with your segment, Yes, I'm finished. The history <laughs> of the diner. So being that New Jersey is well known as the diner capital of the world, it came to me as a surprise that we weren't the first to have a diner. So we're not the birthplace, but in 1872, Walter Scott, he sold food out of his horse-drawn cart in Providence, Rhode Island. And he chose the location in order to serve food to the, the Providence Journal staff. So he just like brought his cart and his horse to the front of their building and then would serve them lunch. And the cart had windows on both sides of the wagon. So it was kind of like a, a walk-up service for his customers. And it's very similar to, I guess, like the food truck of our time. So the concept soon became popularized and more of these, you know, lunch wagon style things started to spread throughout the Northeast. And as the popularity of the diners increased, the lunch wagon was transformed into a stationary diner. And in 1912, Jerry and Daniel O'Mahony and John Hanaf, H-A-N-F, maybe Hoff, I don't know. Sorry, everyone. You know, we don't pronounce things correctly here. They built the first lunch wagon in Union City. So they followed Walter's strategy of picking a location with heavy foot traffic. And Union City at the time was a major commuting location. So you had a few different like bus terminals and I guess like train stops were all stopping in Union City. So when people were commuting or transferring, they'd stop at the diner. This is where New Jersey first sparked the golden age of diner manufacturing. So today there's a number of different diner styles, but the original was kind of like a mobile home, which allowed for train tracks to run on either side. So it took up very little space and you could have like a, a train track that ran alongside it and you'd have like the stop. I think it's one of the most visual I guess examples of that would be in Princeton. Have you been to that diner where it's a former convert? I think it's con a converted train car. And it, sound, it sounds familiar, but yeah. I, don't, I don't think I've been to it. 
Yeah, but you have like train tracks that run alongside it. So you could stop there and take a break on your commute, have a have a meal, or you would be, you know, living in Princeton. So you'd stop there along your way home or on your way to work for breakfast or stuff like that. So there, I stole a lot of this information from Wikipedia credit. <laughs> so I'm quoting, this is an exact quote from Wikipedia. So in the traditional diner floor plan, a service counter dominates the interior with a preparation area against the, the back wall and floor mounted stools for the customers in front. Larger models may have had a row of boots against the front wall and the back at the ends. So Everyone in New Jersey has seen a diner. So this is basically what the like older, more traditional sense of a diner is. And a lot of diners have maybe started off that way. Like the Somerset Diner seems like it started that way and then expanded as they got more popular. But some diners have stepped away from this and they kind of look more like restaurants and not necessarily, you know, that like mobile home, like train car style and a few fun facts that I learned that I never really knew before, before researching this topic. So in the 20th century, most diners were owned and operated by Greek-American immigrant families, which is why you see a Greek influence on most diner menus. So like kebabs and, and gyros are traditionally, that's when the, when the owner takes over a restaurant, they start to customize their menu to what they're familiar with. And it also ends up reflecting the culture of the area. So a lot more as, as diners have changed hands over the years, you'll see more influence on the menu showing, you know, either ownership changes or population demographic changes. So you'll see, you know, Polish, Ukrainian, even you have uh, the Jewish influence. So you have like a lot of menus will standardly have like matzo ball soup and Italian Americans too. You see that influenced the whole pasta section. And now more than more than I, I've seen, cause I've in the area I've been in New Brunswick, Somerset, I have seen the change in menus. So you have like a heavy Latino Mexican Cuban presence in the area and the diners are starting to reflect that. So you'll see like a whole Mexican section on a diner menu, which wouldn't have been there before. And so I thought that was really interesting to see how as our culture of New Jersey changes, it only makes sense the diners, especially if they're 24 hours, will start to reflect their their neighborhoods a lot more, which is not a normal thing in a, like a, a standard restaurant. You know, you're not going to see a, I'm trying to think of it because I keep thinking about change right now, but <laughs> typically your menu is going to stay greek or it's going to stay mexican or it's going to stay italian or it's going to stay you know what i mean but with the diner there is the ability to have a flexible menu and have menus catered to specific times of day and i also wanted to point out that that diners often operate 24 hours a day because they cater to 24-hour public establishments so you have diners near transit areas but you also have diners near establishments like bars or clubs or even factories because you have people who are out all night and they're hungry or you have people who work at night and are going to be hungry so it makes sense to have a diner in a menu that caters to the crowd in a way that normally, like you wouldn't, ex you have breakfast all day or you have like certain meals that like traditionally in like the sense of time, like you're not going to have like an open face sandwich for breakfast. But if you're someone who works the night shift, when you're getting out of work in the morning, you're going to want to have like a dinner kind of meal, if that makes sense. So 
that also caters to why diner menus are so, I don't know, so complex and that they have everything at all hours of the day because they serve people at all different times of day for their lifestyle, if that makes sense. But that's the whole history of the diner and how New Jersey's demographics ever changing will always constantly be influencing what's on our menu in the diner. But Mike, do you have a favorite diner that you'd like to share a story about and like why it's your favorite or what you order at a diner? Because it's another standard New Jersey thing is like, it's not just burgers and fries. Like you can get. Yeah, I really like the Broad Street Diner in Trenton, or maybe it's technically Ewing. Not really sure. It's one of the two. <laughs> I just generally think that they have the best diner food per like price, They're, like a little more expensive than say like your normal diner, but they're not. I've been to some diners where it's like way too expensive and I'm like, yo, hold up. This is a diner. This um, is a diner. It's not a restaurant. Uh, yeah. I'm not trying to pay this much <laughs> at a diner. So that's kind of why I like Broad Streets. It has like basically a little more expensive than diner prices, but the quality like well is well worth it. The service yeah. is always good. I usually, when I go to diners, I'm either breakfast all the time. So it doesn't matter what time really? of day it is. I'll, I'll get something breakfast, some kind of breakfast food, or I'll get like like a sandwich. I think like a those are great standard or, or something like that. Like yeah, yeah, they're usually really good. I usually don't get pasta or things like that at uh, yeah diners just because I'll go to like an Italian restaurant for that. Yeah. I have enough around me. Also, but, any kind of time I've ordered pasta at a diner, it's too al dente. Like it's something with yeah. the pasta and how they cook it. I don't know why, but it's never. And then that is it. But I don't yeah. know that for a fact. I have no idea. <laughs> um, I like diners. I think yeah. they're cool. You, you can just usually a nice place to go with your friends, sit down, chat. That's how this uh podcast, little podcast tree. That's how this yeah. podcast started. <laughs> actually, was it was it the Broad Street Diner? I can't remember what diner it was. I think it was it was in Ewing, so it oh, could it be Ewing. that one. I could have been the Ewing Diner. It was the Ewing Diner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is so. one of my favorites because they have, and I want to plug it, because they always have the option to have soup and salad with whatever you order. So if you get, like, my favorite thing to get at a diner is a buffalo chicken wrap. And they, I just love having soup with, <laughs> just in general, I'm a big soup person. So when I'm able to get a French onion soup, uh, there's nothing better than French onion soup from a diner. I Shout out that. to the Stafford Diner for their best ever French onion soup. Nice. I sometimes like to like the fun thing about diners because they have so much on their menu is sometimes you can just order really weird stuff. So it'll be like, yeah, I'm going to have a <laughs> breakfast sandwich. Right. You know, and I'll get a side order of like mozzarella sticks. Yeah. And I'll have like ice cream as well. And you're just like, what? Like, what is this place that you can just get yeah. all of that at once? Everything. And, yeah. That's why, that's why I like about it. Yeah. There's nothing better than a diner. Even like a hungover diner experience or like a late night diner when you just realize like maybe you're drunk or maybe you haven't paid attention to the time and now it's like 10 o'clock at night and you want a buffalo chicken wrap because you haven't had anything to eat. They just cater to you and, and in a way that I think most restaurants don't. But that's, you know, a little piece of New Jersey culture for everyone. <laughs> well, that's it for the show. Yeah, so... I want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. Uh, be sure to rate us on iTunes. Also check out our website at Jersey Matters at jerseymatterspodcast.com. Also check out the our Twitter, Jersey underscore matters, and our Instagram, Jersey Matters Podcast. Yeah. Thank you for listening, everyone. Signing off. I'm Mike. I'm Casey. Goodbye. Bye.